The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. She, she tells a story that's, that's really believable to them and, and seems so kind and so religious. And, and how could she say these crazy things? So, so I think that Charles's death was sort of this unbelievable, I mean, it's so hard to believe this is actually real, place where, where you see that she is very publicly becoming fanatical about these wild fringe ideologies, talking about her children becoming zombies, about assessing other people, friends, family, and otherwise as as if they're dark or light spirits. And if they go dark, then that means they're a zombie. This has nothing to do with Mormonism at this point. This is like so beyond. And you see a man really trying to, to, to fix it, to save himself and save the people around him. And it unfortunately did not work and had tragic consequences. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for August 31st, 2022. In February 2020, police in the town of Rexburg, Idaho, uncovered evidence of what seemed like an unthinkable crime. Two children murdered by one of their parents. The investigation that followed revealed not only more possible murders, but two alleged perpetrators possessed of a radical belief system that both justified their use of violence and shared common threads with the beliefs of numerous other members of their community. In her new book, When the Moon Turns to Blood, independent journalist Leah Sotilli documents how this grisly murder has its roots in religious and political movements that started more than a century earlier, and how it may have lessons to teach us on the unique forms of extremism that are well established in the American West and are beginning to play a more influential role on the national scene. It's the Lawfare Podcast for August 31st. Leah Sotilli on When the Moon Turns to Blood. It's kind of an interesting book for us to talk about here on the podcast. And I know a lot of reviews, which have been overwhelmingly positive, I've read about and other engagements have kind of treated it as a bit of a true crime story. And there may be that kind of through line to it. Certainly it goes into the details of this sort of grisly murder. But as I was reading this book, it's a phenomenal complement to so much of your other work, both through Bundyville, your podcast series, your other journalistic projects and writings for a variety of outlets, talking about kind of the evolution of various strains of radicalism, American radicalism, usually far-right radicalism, both of a religious nature in some cases, and then particularly of a political nature and where they intersect. And they intersect with the story in the most fascinating way. 
So I kind of want to tee that up to the listener to keep that in the back of your mind as we talk about this story. But first, let's let's get into the main story that's the subject of the book that is the catalyst that you use to explore the intersection of all these different trends. And that is this really horrible story about the murder of two children during the pandemic, so just in the last few years, in 2019. And the murder by their mother, adopted mother in one case, Lori Cox or Lori Vallow, as she went by, uh, and then her lover and later husband, Chad Dable. Tell us a little bit about this event, how it came to your attention, and you know what kind of led to this catalyst of this revelation about these murders that kicks off the story uh, in your book. Sure. Well, I mean, thank you for all the compliments of my work and 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 recognizing that this is um, sort of an extension of the body that I've been building over the last few years. You know, I'm a Western journalist. I I cover the West. I cover extremism, political, religious, and otherwise. And in in 2019, I was coming off of a long project called Bundyville, which we spoke about before on the podcast, and kind of trying to figure out what my next moves were, and you know, just sort of scouring the headlines, looking at what's going on. And I heard about this case in Idaho where a woman and her husband were missing and her two children were missing and no one knew where they were. They, they just seemed to have vanished into thin air. And in reading about it, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested and have written about missing persons cases, but what caught my eye was that someone said that they thought that their cult-like beliefs, that's how they characterized it, that their cult-like beliefs might have something to do with where they were or where they, why they had disappeared. And the story that I read got into the fact that they were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so the Mormon church. And it was just that that kind of raised enough of a flag for me to wonder, could these people believe in some of the religious ideologies that I have found among you know, far-right militia groups and um, kind of these constitutionalist offshoots in in the West. And that was it. That was how it started for me was I wanted to know if the mother and father shared these beliefs. And it was pretty easy for me to answer that they did, that that they at least believed in some of the same things as the people that I've written about in the past. And so it started there. It started in this religious ideology. Did they have this belief in this so-called prophecy, uh, which is not accepted by the mainstream Mormon church, that the constitution will one day hang by a thread and that the LDS people will be the ones to save it. So, so that's kind of what I started trying to do. Do they believe in that? I was able to find a huge body of work of, of the man that was missing, Chad Daybell, Lori Vella's husband. He was a prolific writer at that point, And I could just see from his writing that he was kind of peddling the same conspiracy theories that I'd heard in all of these different far-right circles. And then, of course, with the mother, it was a little bit more complicated to figure that out. But that's kind of that's kind of the origin for me of where it started. And, you know, as you saw in the book, that gets into some pretty interesting corners of extremism and kind of radicalism and, and what that looks like in America right now. Yeah. I, I mean, as becomes pretty evident in your book pretty early on, you know, this ends with the most tragic ending uh, uh, that I think a lot of us, particularly those of us who are parents can imagine, which is the death of two children at, at the hands of their parent, at least one of their parents. We then walk backwards, kind of tracing this evolution about what led up to this sort of decision, a context that could lead to such a 
unimaginable outcome with some other murders or suspected murders along the way. But let's start with these two people who are at the center of the story, Lori Cox or uh, Lori Vallow, as she later came to be known, and then Chad Dable. They both, even in their family histories and their childhood, had really interesting interactions with this or aspects of this belief structure you're describing, whether it is this prophecy that you call the white horse prophecy, or people know as the white horse prophecy about the constitutional kind of intersection of spirituality and the American constitution, but also similar strains of thought. Let's start with Lori a little bit. What do we know about Lori's family background and how was her life kind of shaped by a lot of these belief systems? Lori was was sort of this fascinating person for me to dig into and very difficult because unlike Chad Daybell, she didn't have this huge presence on, on the internet. There wasn't as much of her. And I think that that speaks to the kind of person that she was raised to be. She was raised in Southern California, beautiful, you know, objectively beautiful woman who was a cheerleader in high school and a beauty queen and competed on Wheel of Fortune. But she was raised to be a Mormon mother. And that's what she was when, you know, she had children. She was married several times, as, as I discuss in the book. And but she was also raised by parents who are very public about their opposition to paying federal taxes. In fact, on the very day that it was publicized that her children were missing and they couldn't be found, she had she had been found at that point, but her children couldn't. Her father published an Amazon book called How the American Public Can Dismantle the IRS. And it was really surprising to see. And once I, once I found that book, I was able to dig into his own history of non-payment of taxes, of going to jail for not paying taxes, of, of believing that he didn't have to and no, that nobody has to. And this is something that was so common in my reporting by the time I got to this story. That was something I'd seen in courtrooms with sovereign citizens and militia guys and people who said, you know, the government doesn't have any jurisdiction over me. And that and that's what her father was not only talking about, but trying to put the information out there for other people to to also do the same thing. So so it made me realize that Lori, at least from the time her her father's first case went to court. She was in still in high school. Uh, she was at least raised in part with by by people who were likely talking about anti-government belief systems that they didn't think the federal government had any had any right to tell them what to do. I thought that was very interesting to find. Yeah, and the roots of this, you you trace the evolution of her father's perspective, Barry Cox, going through a long life's trajectory through different sorts of anti-government movements. There's an intersection with the Capaci Comitatus movement. Then he kind of ties in, really sees his fellow travelers, aspects of the Tea Party movement uh, later in court filings you quote from, where he points to them as being reactions to this kind of oppressive action of the IRS. But these beliefs aren't strictly political, right? They, they come from some intersection of both politics and religion that appears to play kind of the shaping role in his worldview, in his opposition to the IRS. Yeah, I think it's, I think you're right. I think they aren't strictly political, but what's interesting is that very specifically this group Posse Comitatus, which is very briefly is a group that was born in the same, very same part of Southern California that Lori Vallow came from, 
and it, and it was saying that the highest level of government is is the county, and that you know if anybody else wanted to question that they could be met with violence. That's the long and short of posse comitatus. But at the same time, the John Birch Society was was thriving and really cozying up to members of the LDS Church. And I think that this is when you know, during Lori's upbringing was, was during a particularly fraught time in the LDS culture in that the president of the church was sort of fomenting conspiracy theories from his position. You have to understand with the LDS church, the president is the prophet. This is the only person within the massive church that can actually speak to God. And so you have someone you know, peddling conspiracy theories, talking about the new world order and, and, and all these things. And, and that is going into the, the masses of, of the church itself. So, so yes, you're right. It wasn't strictly political. It was also being talked about by church leadership. And I think that that was creating a very sort of paranoid, far right culture that, that the church is still dealing with today. So let's shift to the other person in the story, the other main figure, and that's Chad Dable, because he strikes kind of an interesting contrast with Lori. Lori had this very deep saturation with some of these ideas early on, then kind of went through a period where they seemed to be kind of a little fade in the background before they really start playing the central role in her life prior to this kind of incident that that forms the, the impetus for your story uh, in the tragic deaths of her children. Meanwhile, Chad Dable really has this kind of building interest over the course of his life and engagement with these belief systems and the kind of social structures that build up around them. Tell us a little bit about both his early life and the trajectory it leads him on through his adulthood. Sure. So Chad Daybell has this really classic Mormon upbringing. He's born kind of in the bosom of the LDS church. He is born in Provo, Utah, which is home of Brigham Young University, which is run by the LDS church. He lives in a small town called Springville, which is, you know, this is less than an hour away from Salt Lake City, from the center, uh, the beating heart of the LDS church. And he he grows up in a town where 95% of the people there are LDS. He is very, very religious and, and really prides himself on his knowledge of scripture. He reads the Bible many, many, many times, the Book of Mormon many times, all before he goes on his own mission, which is very traditional for a young person in the church to, to go on mission. And um, he attends BYU. So by all accounts, he has this very kind of traditional upbringing. But some a couple of things happen early in his life that are that he characterizes in his own words as turning points for him and his faith. And one of those is that when he's a young man in his teens, he goes cliff diving at a uh, popular swimming spot and, and on the border of Utah. And he has what he says is a near-death experience, that he he dives from a place where it's actually banned to, to dive off of now. And it supposedly hits the water and, and he believes he, he dies for a second and that he comes back. And he says in his writing that after that happens, he feels uncontrollably, unexplainably drawn to the writings of Cleon Skousen, who is a well-known constitutionalist member of the LDS Church and a John Bircher, a anti, you know, communists, Red Scare sort of person, and um, and several other writers. And 
that is when he starts becoming much more interested in this kind of conspiracy laden white horse prophecy-esque version of, of Mormonism. And I think what's really important here is that I've come to understand in my reporting over the years that this idea that the constitution and the LDS faith are intertwined, I thought initially that that was fringe. And what, I, what I've now learned is it's actually quite mainstream, particularly in the Intermountain West, and that that is something very whispered about outside of church. And so I think that that's a really interesting part of, of Chad Daybell's story is that he kind of doesn't start in that place, but evolves into it and then becomes um, more and more steeped in this kind of paranoid constitutionalist ideologies. So I think there's a good moment to take a little bit of a tangent and talk about this white horse prophecy that we've mentioned a few times already, uh, because it's a concept we talked about a little bit when you're on the podcast before in the context of Bundyville and some of the, some of the individuals you were featuring and meeting with and discussing over the course of that podcast series. And it's reappearing here. Tell us what this prophecy is and kind of the role, a little bit more about the role it's come to play, both in motivating the, some of these movements and, and in kind of the broader culture surrounding it. Absolutely. So the prophet and founder of the LDS church was a man named Joseph Smith. And he was uh, had a very storied life that I get into in the book and was was killed by by a mob of, of, of anti-Mormon people in Illinois in the mid 1800s. And after that was when you saw the migration of the LDS people coming west to Utah and, you know, in sort of banning out into these other parts of the country that weren't actually a part of the country at that time. So in the aftermath of his death, a man sort of revealed that he said that Joseph Smith had told him, only him, this prophecy, which is now sort of called the white horse prophecy. And the idea was that the LDS people were referred to as the white horse of peace and safety. They would settle in the mountains in the West and that in the future, they would kind of be, all these ills would sort of be brought upon them by the government and it would be up to them to save the constitution from hanging by a thread that, that supposedly would hang by a thread as fine as silk fiber. That's sort of what it said. And so this man revealed this and the church said, that's, that's, it's hooey. No, no, that he didn't say that. There's no evidence that Joseph Smith said that you're the only one who says this. It's not real. Don't trust it. You know, it's, it, it's not prophecy. And the unfortunate thing was, is that some people said, well, I think it might be. And, and, and so you see this sort of splintering around this idea that whether or not it's real or not, many, many people, most people would, would do what the church leadership told them. And so they, you know, just disregarded it. But there was a subset of people who started to believe, well, hang on, maybe there's something to this. And, and what's interesting is in light of the White Horse Prophecy, there are other people, particularly someone from Chad Daybell's town in the 1800s who, who revealed something very, very similar that he said, I had a dream and it, you know, the constitution was in the brink of ruin. And so you start to see this language kind of revealing itself over time that intertwined the, the existence of the Mormon people and their reason for being here with 
the Constitution itself. I mean, and in some ways, it kind of makes a lot of sense. The the LDS religion would not exist, would it not be for the protections of the First Amendment around religion? And so the Constitution is a very important thing to to many people, uh, many religious people, but particularly in the LDS church. So, so that's kind of where that, that white horse prophecy starts. And I think as you start to see more kind of historical paranoia, you know, specifically around this one president of the LDS church, Ezra Taft Benson, and the kind of idolizing of people like Cleon Skousen and the sort of adoption of these John Birchers within the in the LDS culture, more and more people start to say, hang on, you know, maybe this like separation of church and state thing is not so maybe maybe our faith really is about is political. And that's been a thing that's really fascinated me for years. I mean, like you said, it's something that I was able to sit on the couch of the Bundys and ask them very directly is the constitution, you know, is your faith tied up in, in, in all of your standoffs with the government and your actions? And they said, yes. And, and we talked about that. But this is a culture that is, is, is not just at the extremes. I think, I think it's something that since I made Bundyville, I've just become really aware is catalyzing for a lot of people. Well, that's fascinating. And I want to come back to that. But before we do, let's, let's, let's also dig into one other tangent that Chad Dable's story really illustrates in your book that was interesting and not totally known to me, which is the existence of this kind of media uh, system around certain types of alternative media informed by certain of these ideas. Because Dable, of course, is a prolific author, starts writing very early, although, you know, not always seen as the highest quality, uh, a point of frustration for him, as you describe but nonetheless is inclined to write and actually ends up starting a small printing press. And then, as you describe it, begins, frankly, developing these stories about these near-death experiences he had, at least somewhat many years later, at least somewhat, it seems, in response to the fact that people with these NDEs are getting a lot of media attention from these kind of independent media circles, whether it's printing houses and I'm sure internet presences and conferences and events. Tell us a little bit about that media ecosystem, for lack of a better way to describe it, and how Daybell entered into it and it ended up shaping him a little bit. Sure. I mean, this is probably of the many wormholes in this book. This is probably my favorite. It was, you know, I had never, I never knew that before I, I, I made this with project was that there's this whole arm of publishing of, of, of like LDS books and Chad Daybell was somebody who sold them. He, he wrote them, he wrote memoir, he wrote memoirs about his life that had a lot to do with his faith. He wrote a memoir about being a grave digger, which was something that he, he did as a young person, but then he got really into writing fiction sort of from the position of this you know, the Mormons might have to save the society when when everything collapses. And he he wrote a ton of books on this topic. And I think that yeah, what that opened up to me was he's not he's writing these and he's selling them, and there are people that are buying them. And he was finding some kind of level of celebrity because of these books. And a big part of that was that Chad not only claimed to have that near-death experience when he was young, but he claimed to have another one as an adult that he said he almost drowned in the Pacific Ocean. And 
he said that those near-death experiences allowed him to see beyond the veil, to be able to kind of access the spirit world, to speak to his ancestors and, and leaders of, of the church that had passed and see the future and, and receive visions and even prophecies of, of what was to come for, for America and for the LDS people. And that made him very popular. So part of my reporting for this was diving into the culture of near-death experience figures and, and specifically LDS near-death experience figures of which there are many. And, and I think one of the things that was most interesting to me was coming to understand that some of the most popular near-death experience authors write stories that are almost exactly like Chad Daybell's, where they see it, they, they have a near-death experience, they go and they see into the future, and the future always looks like the United States collapsing because of its sort of sinfulness and corruption, and that the LDS people are the ones who either are saved or save, it, save society. And that was very interesting for me. It, but beyond just the actual sales of books, there are these series of conferences, specifically in the Intermountain West. I'm sure there are ones like it far beyond the West, but in the Intermountain West, there are these conferences where near-death experience authors give speeches and big crowds come out to hear what they have to say. And that opened my eyes to not only just this economy that, that Chad Daybell was able to tap into to make a living, but also that that people are, are, are willing to travel very far to hear the words of these so-called kind of living prophets that characterize themselves as living prophets. And I found the slate of, of these conferences to be very interesting because often you would see people who are astrologers and near-death experience authors, but then occasionally you would have people who are talking about the constitution. You would have some of the figures who are the closest to the Bundy family were also giving lectures about uh, what happened at Bundy Ranch, standing off with the government and things like that. So it brought in this kind of constitutionalist new age milieu that was very, very interesting for me and, and something that I hadn't really seen a ton of reporting around. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. 
Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So this really kind of brings us to the moment where we see Chad and Lori's lives intersect and become intertwined in what proves to be this devastating way. As they kind of build out this belief system and mutually reinforcing belief system among themselves and, and some other people as well, that ultimately leads them to engage in the series of murders that, that, that you open the book with. Tell us about that trajectory before we, we I want to step back further and put it in the broader context in which it happens. But let's, let's, let's kind of wrap up their story first. Tell us where this, this belief system Chad's been developing leads him and Lori, how it informs their actions and what it leads them to do. Sure. And just to be very clear, they are accused of these murders at this point, that they are headed toward trial. So so this is all, you know, but my book is written from public records that don't look great for them in, in this. So just to be clear on that. But yeah, I think a lot of my reporting was trying to understand the intersection of how two people with these seemingly fringe beliefs could could meet. And, and, and it was on one of these conferences that uh, Chad Daybell was selling books and giving lectures and Lori Vallow traveled several hours to go and hear him talk. And when they met, it was this sort of stunning scene of them meeting over a table of books and him saying to her, I believe that we were married in a past life and her not being freaked out by that, but, but saying, yes, I think we were too. And from there, these two march forward and they're, they're, they're both married to other people and sort of engage in this extramarital clandestine relationship of which, you know, we can only surmise the details of, but they start meeting and they start meeting around these conferences. They almost arrange special times for him to give lectures so Lori can be there or he can stay at her house and things like that. So in a, in a way, the story I think has been characterized by some people as like, this doesn't have anything to do with their ideas. It has everything to do with two people who want to have a salacious affair and, and try and get away with it. But I think that it's so much more than that because there are documents that have been revealed, text messages and emails between these two where pretty quickly they decide that they are both the prophesied leaders of the 144,000 from the book of Revelation. These are the chosen people who survive the horrors of, of that, that specific book in the Bible. They think they're the leaders and they think that they are gathering all the chosen people who, are, who will survive the apocalypse. So everything that they start doing is 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 talked about in this religious language it's it's comes from this position that we've been discussing of this sort of fringe culture and uh they start taking it in wild new directions they start to try and recruit people to sort of believe what they believe to to join them to uproot their lives and move from arizona to idaho which is what happened with lori Vallow. Because they think that Rexburg, Idaho is where it is going to be kind of God's chosen chosen place in in the end times. So that's kind of what they start doing. And there now begins this sort of torrent of deaths around them, which are all extremely suspicious. And I, I'm happy to get into those. But I think this is just to say it, it's it's so much more than an affair. It's 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 an affair with this religious cloak around it and all of these horrific 
murders that they are now facing charges for. How do they ultimately end up justifying? What is it this police system tells them about themselves and about these other people who end up appearing to be, again, their victims, not, not yet proven in a court of law? You know, how are they able to justify these things that, from most outsiders' perspective, seem so horrible? And what does the belief system do to allow them to justify it? I think probably the most interesting example of this is the death of Lori Vallow's fourth husband, Charles Vallow. This is someone she was married to for, I believe, 13 years, very much in love. They had adopted a child together. They you know, had this kind of beautiful life. And Charles Vallow is killed in the summer of 2019 by Lori Vallow's brother. And the details of this I get into at length in, in the book. But what, what was very interesting for me to find is that before Charles is killed, there are many, many months of him trying to get the attention of law enforcement, of religious authorities, of his, of his local bishop, of you know friends and family around Lori to say, Lori's religious beliefs have progressed beyond the point of being devout. She's become a fanatic. She is saying that she is the leader of the 144,000, that if I don't get out of her way, she'll, she'll get rid of me. There are these stunning moments of body camera footage of him speaking to the police where he's begging for help, saying, you've got to commit my wife. I'm afraid for her. I'm afraid for my children, what she might do. And you see kind of this just sort of you know, layers of bureaucracy, but also layers of, I don't know, she seems like a nice lady. And, and there are also these kind of stunning moments where Lori Vallos is speaking to law enforcement and just charming the pants off of them. Like they, they can't believe that this beautiful, you know, supposed devoted mother, she, she tells a story that's, that's really believable to them and, and seems so kind and so religious. And, and how could she say these crazy things? So, so I think that Charles's death was sort of this unbelievable, I mean, it's so hard to believe this is actually real place where, where you see that she is very publicly becoming fanatical about these wild fringe ideologies, talking about her children becoming zombies, about assessing other people, friends, family, and otherwise as, as if they're dark or light spirits. And if they go dark, then that means they're a zombie. This has nothing to do with Mormonism at this point. This is like so beyond. And you see a man really trying to, to, to fix it, to save himself and save the people around him. And it unfortunately did not work and had tragic consequences. This story is really interesting, in part, other than the fact that it's just an amazing story and you, and you do a really wonderful job, I think, telling it and writing it. But it's interesting because it is not, this this case in Rexburg is a bit of an outlier. It's an exceptionally mm -hmm. tragic and horrible outcome, but it itself is not an entirely like unique phenomenon. It is an instance, again, somewhat in some ways unusual, but in some ways very familiar instance of a variety of kind of sovereigntist projects that have taken root in this particular part of the country, uh, an area that you spent a lot of time in, in, in the West. Tell us where the parallels are and where they aren't between this case and those other cases. What are the lessons from this case we can learn in understanding better these other sovereigntist movements and communities that, that exist and that you spent a lot of time documenting in other projects in, in this, particularly intensely in this part of the country? 
I think that what this story revealed to me is that for years I have been writing about, you know, militia guys taking over federal properties, you know, wearing head to toe camouflage and carrying a, a semi-automatic weapon or, you know, people who are, are, are very outright radical, gun toting, et cetera. You know, the shape of an extremist has kind of formed itself, I think, in all of our minds of, of, of what that is. And I think what this story revealed to me was, you know, Chad Daybell was by all accounts, by, by friends and family described as a very kind, quiet, almost insecure man. Lori Vallow was, like I said, you know, was so charming and beautiful. And everyone talked about her as someone who was so religious. She taught Sunday school every week. She was, she was given that trust to teach children about, about their religion. And in both of these cases, you you don't see anything that could could look anything like that shape of an extremist that that I think that I have uh, spent so much of my time working on. So I think that that tells me that this these these sort of conspiracy laden uh, far right ideologies where you know the Constitution and religion are twisted up together, they're a lot more mainstream than maybe any of us want to admit. And I think that that's what makes this case so interesting and 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 why I, I think it's a little bit of a shame that the book is characterized as true crime is, of course, there's there are some grisly things that happen in it. But I think it's unsatisfying for true crime readers because it's so much more about this political moment that we're living in that, you know, when these things happened, it was before COVID started uh, when all these people died. And but it was a time that we can't forget where our political paranoia was cranked to 11. You know, we're the, the tensions in the country were freaking people out. And I and I and I have to wonder, had the country kind of not been in that place, whether or not people like this would have been seen by a community of people as, as visionaries. You know, we, it, it, I have to be, be clear that when Chad and Lori were being vocal about what they believed, there were other people who also agreed with them. There were people that they would say, oh, you know, that Lori would talk about her children and talk about whether or not they were dark or light spirits. That was with other people that, that aren't in jail. Um, so there was a community of, of of people who thought that what they were doing was just very religious and it just had these horrific consequences. So I think that there is a, a lesson in it that is very chilling. You know, it's a story of America right now and not just in Idaho and Arizona, but, but maybe further beyond. And um, this is kind of one way of, of, of trying to, to understand that. I mean, I think you, you've perfectly anticipated my next question here, because, of course, the story in the last few years has gone broader than just just these movements. Right. We, we've long been familiar with this idea that there are certain communities that see themselves as kind of separate from the United States or entitled to some uh, special endowment of rights and autonomy that sometimes they defend uh, violently, uh, certainly with sharp elbows. And that's an interesting development in itself. But it's gone, aspects of that have gone, gone mainstream. You've done some other phenomenal writing on things like the Boogaloo movement and the Bundys, who you've mentioned a few times already, who themselves have intersected with electoral politics and national politics in really interesting and troubling ways in the last few years. 
where are those big intersections with those forces in national politics and these ideologies that you're kind of documenting in this story? What is the relationship between them and how can one help us understand the other? Well, I think that it's 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 funny. You know, I'm a freelance reporter, so I am someone who is not always the first on the story. And I think sometimes traditional journalists kind of wonder why I spend as much time on what I do. And 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 I think the White Horse Prophecy is one of those things. It was sort of something like I got some raised eyebrows along the way from other journalists, like, why do you care so much about this? And I think that to me, when political ideas become religious, that's that's something you know, religion is the most powerful thing in the world. You can't make someone back away from those beliefs. And so that was one thing that was really fascinating to me when I heard about it. But I think that since writing this book, we have seen all of the January 6th hearings happen. And specifically, someone from Arizona, a guy named Rusty Bowers, who was what testified before the House Select Committee, but also lost his election just recently in Arizona. He he said in those committee meetings that my I believe the constitution is divinely inspired. Uh, my faith is what teaches that. He's he's Mormon and and since losing his re-election, he he has talked about that his belief in the white horse prophecy. So here was now, you know, this thing that I spent so much time on that was so fringe is arriving in you know, in the United States Capitol. This is this is being talked about at this moment in history. So, so I think that that's one thing. But, you know, I think that there are all kinds of intersections between the ideologies that I, I think that I have covered that feel like they're very Western born, but they aren't. You know, so much of my work has been about covering the sort of discontent around federal lands in the West. And I think that that is something that a lot of, you know, big city faraway media has characterized as, oh, those are just grievances of cowboys out there in the West. Like, we don't know anything about federal land. But what my work argues is that the West has simply been a testing ground for extremists to see what they could get away with. And they've gotten away with a lot. And I think that all of that was a precursor to January 6th. And then the last thing that I think, you know, since you mentioned my story that I wrote for the New York Times Magazine about the Boogaloo movement, it's a very nihilistic movement of of young people who believe the country is is just beyond help and they have this very very nihilistic belief system born out of this this moment that we're living in and and the and the whole thing is to just burn it all down and i think that there's something to that there's a through line between from the boogaloo to the more you know long time public land standoffs and the white horse prophecy constitutionalists the tea party is that there is this this thread that the country cannot be helped and we might be at the moment where we need to take extreme action whether or not that's storming the capital whether or not that's fomenting ideas about civil war this is all a, a through line from that that's the commonality that i can say is in all of my work whether it's about this mother who was seen as, as so kind and nice who is now accused of murdering her children because of her religious ideologies, the Boogaloo movement, the militia guys, preachers who have, you know, used their 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 pulpit to sow conspiracy theories within their congregations. So so I think that that's, um, you know, it's a terrible thing to come around on all this work and say that's the takeaway. But I think that is one of the big takeaways for me. So we're almost out of time, but but I want to close with one last question for you. 
you know, at the top of this conversation, you introduce yourself as a Western journalist, um, and you really capture a lot of these stories that intersect with the West, both because I imagine because you live there, <laughs> that's where you work as a big mm-hmm. part of it. But also there's this idea that that aspects, characteristics of the West are part to the reason why it has become the testing ground for these sorts of ideas, uh, or and particularly certain parts of the West. What are those characteristics that you think make the West or parts of the West so susceptible or inclined towards facilitating kind of movements like this? And, you know, what does that tell us about how or ways in which those ideas might begin to expand elsewhere? Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, I think that so much of my work on people's anti-government belief systems is because I was raised in Oregon, you know, and I was surprised when I heard that people did like the government as much as maybe they did, that it that it didn't seem like I knew a lot of people who were big fans of it. it, it you know, and I grew up in very liberal, progressive circles. So, so that was something that I was able to kind of arrive at reporting about anti-government extremism in the West with, uh, okay, yeah, I mean, this is not, a lot of this is not new to me, but let's hear about where you're coming from. So I think that maybe there's a culture in the West that is um, very skeptical. There is certainly, I think, something that is talked about a lot in, in places like Idaho, this sense of rugged individualism that that we're out here and and the uh, government is very far away and probably shouldn't tell us what to do. And um, that could be taken to extremes. I think also also the fact that so much of the Western United States is federal land. And that is so that's these huge, huge portions of land that are owned by the federal government, dictated by people 3000 miles away, but used by local people. I think that people have a, a sense of um, closeness to to the land and, and don't like being told what to do with it, that they think that they're the best stewards of it. And and that, that mentality kind of seeps into everything around it, the culture and the, you know, feelings about government and, and maybe the love for the county sheriff, but not for the FBI or the Forest Service law enforcement or things like that. So I think that I think that's one thing. I mean, I also think that that it can't be said enough and specifically in in the case of my book, that there is a culture that tried to leave the United States. And this is the this is the Mormon people after Joseph Smith died at the direction of Brigham Young. They came west to a place that was not the United States yet. It was it was very quickly thereafter made a part of the United States. But at that point, it was it was it was territories. It was it was Mexico. And the whole point was the United States is not on our side. So let's leave. And the the history of what happened in Utah, where federal troops came in and raided homes and broke up polygamous families and, you know, right or wrong, whatever, wherever you stand, that happened. And that history isn't that long ago. So so a lot of the people who whose families started here in the Western United States have this very close history of not trusting the government wanting to get away from them. And I think that that really kind of filters in, into a lot of things. Of course, I could say much more about that, but I think that that's one aspect of it. 
Well, we will unfortunately have to leave the conversation there for today, but maybe we will have a chance to pick up this conversation again in the future. I suspect we will. But until then, Leah Satili, thank you for being with us today here on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get our podcasts. And look out for Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual weekly conversation about national security news that I co-host, along with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this podcast and other special perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howell, and our audio engineer was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.